Welcome to Practice Perspectives Keen Insights, where radiology meets heart. I am your host, Diane Keen, and together we'll explore the world of radiology. Join us as we engage in insightful conversations with expert leaders throughout our field, offering honest and open discussions that will resonate across the industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Keen Insights podcast. I am your host, Diane Keen. And today's guest is Dr. Kurt Shoppe. Dr. Shoppe is the president of Radiology Associates of North Texas, one of the largest, if not the largest, privately held private practices in the country. And rather than give you the typical introduction for Dr. Shoppe, I am going to give you what one of his friends and colleagues gave me. Dr. Shoppy's superpowers are rock star dad, Olympian grade fitness, sailor linguistics, and acute discernment. Dr. <laughs> Shoppy, welcome to the show. Howdy, it's nice to be here. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, was a great introduction. Any guesses on who may have said that? Uh not certain that could that could very well be our ceo uh mr corbin wilson uh so he he tends to be a flatterer uh and and overstate one's qualifications because he's he does a very good job of making feel people feel good about themselves you are correct it was corbin <laughs> that gave me that intro um but he's not wrong so um is there anything else you would like to add to that introduction though tell us a little bit about yourself uh so you know, my background is relatively varied. Uh, you know, we can look at it in reverse from a radiology uh, standpoint. I've, I've been with Radiology Associates of North Texas for about 10 years now. Uh, I was on the board uh, for about seven and before I started as president in January. Uh, before that, I was a body and body interventional radiologist doing both diagnostic and procedure uh, rotations. I tend to do the cross-sectional uh, intervention uh, procedures like CT and ultrasound guided uh, cases. The, you know, I started my residency journey thinking I was going to do IR and uh, really ended up finding more of my you know, passion and joy in the uh, cross-sectional procedure style as opposed to the uh, endovascular. So I fully support them and I'm glad that they covered the call and I'm glad that I don't have to. Uh, you know, Before that, I trained at Wake Forest, both for my residency and fellowship, and I was at Baylor College of Medicine for med school before that. Uh, you know, I've, I have a, a helter skelter background of, uh, different, uh, activities, both professionally and, and, uh, as, as hobbies, as, as Corbin alluded to on the, on the fitness job. So, uh, you know, we can, we can putter around and, and, and find some of those, uh, later my, uh, you know, the key bit of my past that most people, uh, take an interest in, especially now, given what's happening in the uh, radiology workspace, was I, I did work in private equity uh, before I ended up going back into uh, to healthcare and actually initially was going to do an MD, MBA, and then decided that the MBA was a bunch of academicness and the street level uh, learning was, was more important. It also took a lot of time and a lot of money, and I wasn't sure there was a, you know, not to, to shoehorn in the finance terms, but a return on investment and just having the credentials after my name. And so I stuck with the MD, skipped the MBA, and uh, still end up tending to have a finance or economic bent to, to most of my uh, work in radiology. I think that's what a lot of people these days um, associate with you when they 
when they hear the term shoppy. You've become a term, not just a name. It's just shoppy. I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing, but I'll roll with it for now. <laughs> it may be either, but it's true. Um, so I have known you, well, we've known each other now for five years, which seems insane that it has been five years. And like a lot of my friends in radiology, it was an RBA event um, where we were introduced. So yeah, five years ago seems seems longer and it seems shorter at once. I was going to say, I don't know what is, if it's impolite to say it feels like longer. Uh, you know, just because we pack a lot of stuff in there. Uh, so it, it, and those, you know, intermittent meetings, the, the professional conversations and, and all the rest, like those, you, you end up making those contacts and, and it feels like a deeper connection than just a five-year connection. I, I would agree with that. Um, so I think because of those conversations and working together on various talks and opportunities, um, I've learned a few things about you that I'll share here, um, and you, you may argue them or, or not agree, but I think it's pretty accurate, and I would think more people than just myself would agree. Um, what I've learned about Shopee in the past five years, you always give credit where credit is due. You never, it, I've never seen ego involved in in you allowing other people to um, shine, which is lovely. Um, you always say exactly what you mean. I think some people are not accustomed to hearing the truth, but you are a truth teller and you don't make many apologies for that. Um, you don't shy away from it. Um, you acknowledge and support your staff. And I've, I've heard you talk about your MRI techs or your um, office staff or your colleagues, uh, Corbin, everybody around you, and you you often recognize them in both um, words and actions, which is really great to see. And another thing, and we can talk about this a little more, just especially this one sticks with me a lot because of my background in radiology marketing, but you have always been very supportive of marketing in radiology and supporting your team. And also, I mean, as the president of the group with budget considerations and everything else, you value that. And, you know, that's especially significant to me right now because I've had several friends in the industry who have been cut from their positions in radiology groups um, who are marketing experts because of, you know, various reasons, practices are cutting marketing departments and, and you haven't. And I appreciate the fact that you see the value in that. So that's that's been um, a, another good thing to see. So those are some of the things in the past five years that I have learned from knowing you. Fair enough. Yeah, The from the marketing perspective, I think that that's one of those bits that comes from prior experience. I think if you, the the preponderance of your business experience was in healthcare, uh, then it's easy to lose out on the importance of how these different business functions add up to greater than the sum of their parts. And I think marketing is one of those pieces. Uh, and it goes down to at at some point you have to invest. You can think of it just purely monetarily, but but allow me to to say the the gauche. Uh, thing and then back that up with with some others but you know you have to spend money to make money in that sense but I think it's more than that it's the time it's the attention uh, and the intention and how you make people feel and you know for a long time many people in healthcare succeeded in spite of themselves not because of themselves I think when you get into difficult circumstances when you have to run lean 
and uh, be efficient, it's easy to look at something that has a very soft impact or something that's difficult to measure, like quality, like the impact of marketing services. And it's easy to underweight the importance of it or miss that soft, that psychological piece, that relational piece that's in there. And you know, it's difficult from a cost accounting perspective to justify some of those things. I would say because the other thing I did in our group before was I ran our quality programs. It's one of the few academic conferences I still go to is like the, the ACR quality and safety conference. Uh, but I think quality and marketing, both things that are very, very difficult to measure are very, very important. Uh, not just, you know, in the standpoint of you're supposed to have these things or these divisions or, or these departments, they're really important because those two things help you build connections and relations. And you need both of those when things get tough. Uh, you know, numbers are numbers, money is money, and people don't necessarily have the, the most healthy relationships with metrics or money, but they have healthy relationships with people who they feel value them and that they in turn value. And I think sometimes, especially in healthcare, you actually have to teach people to do those things and show them, not just do it. We can't just do good radiology or do good patient care and expect people to see it. I think the functions of quality and marketing is to, to help you make people feel it. And so, and to develop those relationships and in so doing, have a broader base of support for your business itself. And I think outside of healthcare, people appreciate that a little bit more. Uh, and, and understand some of that impact. And, and perhaps it's a little bit easy to measure uh, quality control and marketing impacts in different industries, uh, but it doesn't make them, just because it's difficult to measure in healthcare doesn't make it not important. I would agree with all of that. I, you know, I started in radiology when, gosh, you were probably in junior high. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was in the very, you know, it's over 20 years ago and it was in the very, I think early stages of actually marketing radiology and, you know, back in the day, um, I'm finally old enough that I can say that and it's quite um, literal, but radiology was housed in the, in the radiology department of the hospital. And what came to you was what you did mm -hmm. and, and the ability or the wherewithal to go out and, and be on the, offense go out and ask for this go out and earn the the work has has been I've watched it evolve for a long time but I think what I see sometimes now that to me I feel like it's a little short-sighted and again I commend you because you lead your group in a different way and support your marketing efforts in a different way but I've seen with with friends who have um, been cut from their marketing department or their marketing jobs and their departments have been cut in other practices I, I see several things first you know, we, 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 I'm sure we'll talk about this later and you have some thoughts on this, but we all know that it's, there's a shortage or an unavailability of positions of radiologists to fill the needs that we have in practices all over the country. And, and then at the same time, there's a backlog of, of studies because of that and other factors that I've heard the excuse or the reasoning from various practices of why do we need to market when we can't even get to the cases we have now? We're completely, you know, backed up for weeks, if not months. So why should we put effort into marketing? And mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think more than ever, when when we get to times like this is when you need it more than ever. 
because when there is such a backlog or there are so many other contributing factors that might be perceived as negative, more than ever, you need your mm -hmm. relationships to remain strong. You need to let your local practice and your local referring community realize that in spite of, of whatever difficulties maybe happen, that you still need them, you appreciate them and you value them. Right. So and I, I think that is um, just a, a great thing to consider. And yeah. I, you know, I've talked a lot about this lately with, with various people, but I, I really do appreciate your perspective on that. And that's fair. And it's, but it's an easy piece to miss. And, and this goes back, even when I was in residency and we'd be interviewing uh, medical students for the residency program and we'd have them out at dinner beforehand. And one of the things I would routinely tell that group is whether you understand it or not, radiology functions as a service specialty. Uh, everybody likes to think they're at the top of the pile. It doesn't, but it just doesn't shake out that way. You can be very important. You can be critical, in fact, foundational for the hospital and, and, and other. Uh, you know, specialties to achieve what they need to achieve, but it doesn't make you not a service specialty. And I would argue in that example you give of we're fully booked out uh, for weeks or months, why would we need to go spend time uh, advertising? Well, two things. One is you're not being able to serve certain of those referring relationships the way you want because their patients are going to be delayed. And so that makes them look bad. They're the ones that their patients are going to blame for that, not you. Uh, and so you want some brownie points, some reserve, some something in that relationship where they can understand that. And you need to be communicating that to them. Uh, but also potentially, if this is an important referral, uh, making things available to them as best you can, whether that's procedural access or the diagnostic imaging access. That's one. The second one is just because you're fully booked doesn't mean your case mix is good for you from a business standpoint. We all know there are asymmetries. Uh, and inconsistencies with how certain cases are reimbursed, the time it takes certain cases to be performed, interpreted. Uh, you have the ability in a fully booked schedule, if you're still working on your referral basis, to change what your case mix is from a referral basis that may advantage you either by making it easier for your workforce to get through the, or your workforce to get through the work that's there, or optimizing your economics from the work that is there if you're already fully booked. And you're going to have to do that by shaping your relationships and your referral patterns. So a fully booked schedule to me does not mean that you are optimal. Fully booked schedule just means you're fully booked. Uh, I would argue that you need to look at it at the next level to, to, to really decide what, what impact you can have because you have not only economic considerations, but your straight up workforce. I mean, if you're if your primary referral base is wall-to-wall -wall cancer follow-ups, that's tough for your workforce to get through, even on a fully booked schedule. Uh, if you can expand some things that diversify your pool, depending on how you read your subspecialist, whether you're fully general or, or subspecialized, you can distribute that work a little bit more evenly amongst your rads or find work that is, quote, easier. Uh, I'm going to pick on MSK here. Uh, I would rather them have a whole bunch of joint MRIs than a whole bunch of liver and complicated pelvic cancer MRIs. Like let's, you know, call a spade a spade. Those things are probably, they reimburse at very similar levels, but they're going to be your ability to interpret those and distribute that work is a little bit differently. So a fully booked schedule does not mean that you are optimized. I think that's lazy thinking. If you want to get back to, I tell the truth and people have to exactly. deal with it. Uh, so, right. And it, but it's the same thing with marketing. Like you, 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 we can tell ourselves stories that we 
run our businesses well just because you know your net positive cash flow and your schedule is booked. But that's not really what any other industry would consider a well-run business. And just because you tell that story to yourself or your shareholders uh, or investors or whomever doesn't make it true. Agreed. Yet another reason why metrics and data are so valuable in everything we do, including including our marketing and business decisions related to what we will try to grow. Um, so I know you're often called on as an, you know, a subject matter expert and a, and you're called on to speak at industry events or, or join committees or add value on multiple levels. Um, tell me a little bit about like what topics are you most asked to talk about? What, what do, what does this industry go to, to shoppy for? <laughs> no, fair <laughs> question. Uh, I think traditionally, because I spent a lot of time as the uh, a RUC advisor, so you know that was the the RUC is the Relative Value Update Committee. It's a committee that functions within the AMA, the American Medical Association. That uh, you take CPT codes and then you take a bunch of data and arguments and debate at Sturm, Drang, uh, and, and the rest of it, and you turn it into RVU, Relative Value Unit recommendations to Medicare. Essentially, this committee makes recommendations to Medicare of what healthcare procedures by CPT code should be paid. Uh, now, Medicare traditionally has accepted a fair portion of those, you know, 70 to 90%, depending on the year. Uh, but Medicare is the ultimate determining factor of what RVU levels they accept. And then most of your payers, uh, we call them payers, they're claims processors, your, your BUCA uh, payers, the Blue Cross, United Signet, Aetna, those, those insurance companies tend to key off the RVUs of Medicare. Somebody else is making the decision, they're just going to join that bandwagon. And so that process is, is really important. And it's one of those things that, that got me interested in it in the first place, because it's, it, it snowballs into everything else. So it's where the sausage is made. Uh, and you, you know, if you're not, you know, uh, at the table, you're on the menu. And uh, that was one of those transitions I kind of made in training where it's easy to sit back and complain about things. It's harder to jump in and participate. And it can be frustrating and slow and soul sucking uh, and the rest. But, you know, you get wins here and there. Sometimes those wins are you're losing less than you otherwise would have, but it's still a win because your future state, is, you know, future state number one is better than what future state number two would have been. Uh, and so you, you got to have some perspective on it, but it, that perspective, that understanding of payment policy methodology from the government side, from private payer side, and how those RVUs, the, the literal way that physicians are paid for the vast majority of their work, how that, how that functions, that's usually uh, what gets people's attention or gets me in the door or did traditionally. Uh, as I've segued in my career and experience level more and more uh, it becomes a, a tilt towards practice management or what you do with that information. Uh, and, you know, I give a talk that I, that I like, and it's, you know, it comes in various guises, but one of the fundamental lessons is that policy is culture. Uh, and so it's very easy to get lazy or overly intellectual or, uh, you know, with an improper consideration for policies within your departments or within your groups. And RVUs are a place that people do that frequently uh, because they don't necessarily understand that the RVU determinations are not perfect. Uh, in that same talk, I actually say that all RVUs are wrong 
because the RVUs are determined by what the typical case is by the, the, the data that we have from the Medicare claims. Uh, but that doesn't mean that your subsection of 40 or 50 year olds are gonna have that same set of diagnosis codes. And the same thing is you're picking the typical patient for that procedure. So if you cover an outpatient imaging center in a suburban area that has a relatively young or affluent referral base, you are technically getting overpaid for every CPT code you perform because those patients don't have the typical morbidity mortality of a Medicare patient in whom those RVUs were determined. Similarly, if you cover an inner city hospital that's a level one trauma center, that's a quaternary referral for trauma, cancer, whatever, you are underpaid for every single CPT code you do because every CPT code level has, or every single CPT code has one payment rate. And it's that perfect patient in the middle so technically, basically every patient that you see, the RVUs for that CPT are wrong because it's only that perfect middle patient where they're, they're actually correct. And so depending on your case mix, if you see a lot of difficult cases, you're underpaid for all those cases. They're going to take longer. They're more difficult. They're more psychologically difficult. They're more you know, emotionally or physically difficult to do them. Similarly, if you're in a certain environment, you're, you're technically overpaid for all those patients because they don't have the, the, the disease burden the incidentals, the, the complexity that was determined for that typical patient. And so your policies should address some of this nuance. And then part of that comes in where, and not a lot of people know, well, more people know it now because I bring it up, but my background was, yes, it was economics and finance, but it was also psychology. And, uh, you know, and one of the things my mom taught me very well is you, you can tell people what to do, but you can't tell them how to feel. And if you write policies in your group in a way that does not recognize the way that those policies make people feel, particularly when it comes to your policies around how they work, how much they work, how they're rewarded for the work that they do, they're going to feel bad. And in a workforce shortage, if you're making your people systematically feel bad, they're going to find other options. And I think a lot of people have found that out the hard way because Right now, if you want to work 100% from home and work four hours a day, there's a job for you. There's several jobs for you, actually, and, and pretty highly compensated. And so a lot of people relied on the stickiness of physicians. Uh, and I'm not just talking about radiology. I'm talking about in general stickiness of physicians. And so they feel comfortable not having to deal with the complexity and nuance of how they might feel to work in that environment. Whereas in radiology, that's really come to a head because people have options and they can work 100% offsite. They don't have to come into your department. They don't have to come into your hospital or your imaging center. They can work from home. And a lot of people have given two middle fingers to groups, academic departments and whoever uh, that they feel are treating them poorly or is a toxic work environment. And they're just gonna go work from home and you know they'll find something else later if they wanna get back into it you know, in person. So the policy matters, the culture you do matters and you should, address it with some intention. Uh, don't let it happen accidentally. That's that's one of the points I try to make people. And then the other, when you talk about this policy, the intersection of policy in your group or department and, and payment policy and RVUs in general, I think one of the, the, the talks you invited me to was that, that IR versus DR fight club, uh, <laughs> because the, you know, the RVUs kind of cycle over time. MAMO used to be an RVU dog, and now it's an RVU king. IR used to be the opposite, RR with component coding, and the rest of it, IR was a RVU king, and now they're 
very much RBU dogs. And where if you're if you have IRs that are only based on the hospital, it's very difficult for them to cover their costs uh, if they don't read a significant amount of DR or diagnostic radiology. And they don't necessarily want to do that. That's not what they they train for. Uh, and what they want to do is spend time with patients and seeing them. And so that's why you see a lot of groups now. They they look at it and and they they treat it like every single person should be a, in and of themselves profitable. And this is actually what a lot of pharmaceutical companies have done with their individual products, like saline and certain medications. Which is why you have shortages in them. They're like every standalone thing should be profitable in and of itself. And I think that's a terrible attitude for healthcare. It may make sense in other businesses, but when you're in the business of healthcare, uh, there has to be a certain amount of altruism uh, in how you run your business for the entire model of healthcare to work. And you could argue that in a capitalistic society, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm not gonna disagree with you. However, that's why I also don't like that attitude in healthcare. So you can, inform your decisions with some of these other industries, but healthcare really, really needs to be considered separately. Uh, and I think, uh, I think it's Elizabeth Rosenthal in her book uh, talked about how pharmaceutical companies used to have product lines and other things that they were willing to lose money on. And one of the reasons we have these drug and supply shortages right now is people don't want to do it. Uh, you know, and hospitals still look at radiology groups with interventional and, and diagnostic components as like, you have to do the whole thing. And they don't acknowledge, or then some of them just frankly acknowledge that you're going to lose money on the IR piece, uh, but you get the DR piece and you just deal with it. That's harder. That's a harder attitude to maintain when you have radiology groups that are now separating because that economic divide gets so wide. And it's particularly acute in smaller groups. And so unless you had the culture where the IR guys are gonna really hammer it on the DR or you rotate people through those money losing shifts, it's very difficult to, to, to work that way. And so this is one of those where attitudes have inertia and those attitudes I think are changing uh, and we can talk about it, but there's gonna be things that get broken along the way. Maybe they're hospital departments, maybe they're radiology groups, maybe there's people's spirit, but that's part of our capitalistic creative destruction society is as we work on whatever the new normal is, uh, the old normal is going to get broken and people are going to get hurt. And we just have to try to weather that the best we can. Great answer. A lot, a lot of answers here that, it, or a lot of um, statements that have triggered a lot of follow-up questions I want to ask. Well, I mean, that gets to, to, to one of the things I think we've talked about before is people love micro specialty or super specialist people who know everything there is to know about one thing and while that's tempting that's a very unidimensional way to approach the world especially a complex world and environment and and, and david epstein uh has a book called range where he talks about how you know generalists will win in a subspecialized world and you know i i very much believe that you know, particularly in healthcare, but I think in business in general, and, and he gives great examples across multiple industries where a lot of your innovations and insights were made by somebody who wasn't like the deep expert who knew everything there was to know about MRI physics or, you know, the, the pathology of the liver. It's about somebody who knew multiple things from multiple disciplines and may have come from a little more of a helter-skelter or renaissance background, and they can make connections across industries across specialties across disciplines uh, that other people don't necessarily see and that's why you know there's there's a power and a strategy and a value in having people that have 
varied and generalized experience. And it's something we actually, I prefer to look for in some of our management staff. Like, that's great that you've managed radiology for a long time. But honestly, I consider you more valuable if you've been in more than one industry or at least more than one specialty and seen healthcare from a couple of different viewpoints. Uh, I think you come in with some more empathy, with some more compassion, and with a greater ability to uh, adjust, adapt, and overcome. Uh, because you know the 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 our our industry here is not in a static environment. We actually just left the meeting before I joined this call about the fact that there's going to be some instability. When you look at the financial situation for some of the larger corporate practices, when you look at it for some of the corporate-run imaging center businesses and others, avoiding naming names, uh, truth-telling only gets you so far. Uh, you know, the there will be there will be blood, and uh, one of those things that I consider our responsibilities is how do we navigate that uh, to minimize the pain for our practice and our radiologists and our staff. Uh, but at the same time, how can we do it and still cover patient care gaps that may develop from these places? Because just because an imaging center chain is essentially in a death spiral with their cash flow versus their debt doesn't mean that they're not actually seeing and caring for a fair number of patients uh, and may continue to do so. So how can we fill those gaps? And that's where I think that attitude difference between a, a purely business sense and a healthcare sense is different. Uh, I think when you have outside investors in the doctor-patient relationship, it's an irreconcilable conflict of interest. Uh, you know, and everybody looks for that outside investor money. Uh, but the problem with that is those outside investors play in multiple industries and they have certain expectations for a return. And I think physicians, nobody wants to sign up to lose money, but the margin that we're willing to tolerate on making money tends to be less. Uh, tend to run things a little bit more altruistically, a little more friendly. Uh, can't run it to where you're not profitable. There has to be some some success there, but I don't need a 20% margin to make it work. And, and, and that gets to something that we've talked about before, like RANT, uh, Radiology Associates of North Texas, getting into the outpatient-based labs, the OBL space. Uh, it was, yes, there's an economic component to it and, and controlling technical is important, to a degree, but it represents a low cost portal of entry for patient care. Uh, and it is one of those that can improve our interventional radiologist work environment because they're doing pure IR. Just like sometimes I would take our evening or overnight shifts, you know, our, our group, you do those voluntarily. It's not assigned as part of the group, you know, you get compensated for it, but I would do those because I could spend a week not dealing with administrative headaches, committee meetings or whatever. I was doing what I considered very pure radiology, diagnostic radiology, where the people I'm going to be talking to on the phone are going to be the surgeons or the ER docs who are taking care of those patients. And that's about it. I'm not dealing with all the other shenanigans and, and the rest of it. I'm having a real hard time avoiding the sailor linguistics. Uh, <laughs> the... So the same thing for IR. One of the, the the reasons to open OBL is because it improves what it's like to work for our IRs because they enjoy going in there and doing pure IR uh, in that sense. And so, you know, that's you know, people, and, and this is one of those attitudes I think gets people in trouble and we'll, we'll see some of that, but you don't just open an OBL and money happens. Uh, and this is where your marketing and your other pieces come in. But I think it, it, it works a lot better when you consider the broader community impact that you're having with the OBL and where it fits in 
for those communities for patient care access uh, and your others. So when you consider those things broadly, as opposed to just selfishly, like, I don't want to work for the man, I want to know an OBL, that's fine. Fantastic. I think your likelihood of success goes up if you're looking at at how you fit in to, to, to where you're at in that broader sense, understanding the relational piece that goes into to, you know, that business venture. Okay, so many follow-up points. I, I would like to jump in and say a few things. First, you, you referenced a, a, a little bit ago about um, the talk that I brought you in to do a couple years back, and it was basically, yes, that fight club, and, and that was your theme. I remember most of your slides were fight club photos and and your the movie yes of your talk was what you said not what you showed but it was nice to see the the brad pitt you know fight club scene on the screen as you spoke but um that particular that was in i think 2019 and i put together an entire ir track for a pre-conference um half day and then throughout an rbma conference and I, i remember as i was pulling in um interventional radiologists from various um, you know, various specialties or various points of interest. I think um, uh, Matt Hawkins, Kathy Kroll, some of those. As I was putting this together, I wanted to include you because of your experience and just, I think we talked about, you know, the, the value of IR outside of the RVU and, and how some, some of that develops into this fight club um, uh, fuel. But I, I can remember so many people saying he's not an interventional radiologist, a traditional, you know, vascular mm-hmm. interventional radiologist. Why are you including him in an IR track? And it's that very thing um, that you mentioned about you, of course, doing some of the, the body IR procedures. You have that experience, but also just your ability from that business side to to recognize, even as a diagnostic radiology, that. This is a conversation that it, that extends far beyond calculating an RVU. And, and so that actually turned out to be one of the, the best rated parts of that whole session. So thank you for doing that. Um, you, gosh, there's so many things that you said that just triggered so many thoughts. You know, you talked about having this range of capabilities or range of experience. And I can appreciate that too on a personal level because my career has sort of been that way. I, I did a podcast interview with, with someone a couple of days ago for, for another podcast. And, and that was part of the conversation, this kind of strange um, career path I've had that's kind of led me to here. But it, but it is that very thing of, of being able to understand and gain experience outside of just one thing that I think adds value to what you have to offer because you do have the abil- ability to see it from different perspectives whether it's marketing, whether it's operations, whether it's recruiting, whether it's common sense, which a lot of times I think gets left out of a lot of the things that we deal with. Um, and then, of course, the OBL conversation. You know this. I think a lot of our listeners who know me personally will know this. I am very drawn to interventional radiology. I always have been. I am especially now the OBL space really is gaining such traction and such momentum that I was very happy when I did learn that that Grant was um, building and would open an OBL just because I I support that space so much. And you're absolutely right. It does take a long time to become financially successful, if you will. But the fact that you're doing it, and we all know that 
the procedures that are offered by an interventional radiologist and then to move that a little further into an outpatient setting where there is easier access and, and better mm-hmm. access to care, it's just phenomenal. And and to be able, as a leader of this practice and a business leader in your um, financial responsibility to your group, but to be able to put that in its place, but then also remember that you are in the business of taking care of patients. And if this is a way to offer the patients in your community, in your area, better access to care and procedures that could help them without surgery and, and all of the, the benefits of IR that you're able to see that and still you know, reconcile that, okay, we might not you know, make tons of money right here yet. It always happens, I hope eventually, especially in a well-led group that pays attention to the metrics and, and that's considering what's going on. But I, I do commend you for doing that. And I, I really enjoy having conversations with you about that OBL and and I, I will have to admit that there have been times I, I live in Georgia, but Texas sounds pretty tempting sometimes just because your group is so well so well ran. And when you started talking about opening an OBL, I, I have to admit I was I, I could have my arm could have been twisted, but yeah, no fair so fair statement. Happen, but um, th- that would have been interesting to say the least. Okay, I'm going to switch directions. I ask all okay. of my podcast guests these questions. So don't be alarmed. Easy, but this is another get to know you a little bit. So, all right. this, okay, this or that. Climb a mountain or skydive? You know, that's tough. I'm a mountains over beach kind of person. However, uh, I've also done a fair amount of skydiving. That's one of my random factoids technically have my master's license in skydiving i think i have over just over 250 jumps uh the i like climbing a mountain i like the the views i like the the way the air smells i like the way it sounds as you're working you know your way up the mountain however there's a certain freedom uh to skydiving and you know at terminal velocity air acts like liquid and i also swam in college and so i i I like the ability to, to, to control that and fly even briefly, uh, as it were, whether free falling or under canopy. And so uh, I'll take the Tom Petty answer here and go with free falling and skydive. Oh, love Tom Petty. Um, great answer. Very shoppy answer. Most people just say mountain climb and it's over with. So I love I love how deep you go into um, into explanations and, and follow up. OK, next. Salty or sweet? That was a little bit easier. Uh, I don't, if I have things that are sweet, they tend to be in really small quantities. Uh, If I have chocolate, it tends to be that like bitter 80 to 90% cacao uh, chocolate. So I would say salty uh, for the most part. Uh, I'll take that. The, 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 uh, you know, pretzels are a personal weakness, uh, especially the big ones with the soft middle. Uh, You know, that's the, that's the, 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 German or the Bavarian in me coming out. Uh, but I will make a small exception for, you know, there's a couple things I would eat myself sick on. Uh, beef jerky is one of them, but gummy bears, damn. But I have to avoid them. Uh, so we'll stick with salty because it's less likely to kill me quickly. You could do the dark chocolate with salt on it. Probably the oh, no, exactly. Do sea salt caramels with dark chocolate? Yeah, that's it. Okay, binge watch or binge read? Ooh, ah. Uh, 
I like both and have done both. Uh, you know, my reading now with with work and the girls and everything else gets confined mostly to Audible, so I'm listening to it in the in the car uh, or while doing other stuff. So it's it's harder to binge. But the same thing is harder to binge watch things with a with an almost six year old and a nine year old. Uh, if I tend to bitch watch things, it tends to be theirs, uh, not mine. Uh, in fact, it's, it's usually flying to conferences or other places where I'm able to watch the movies like that I want to watch <laughs> on the, on the plane. Uh, so I, I, you know, for, for ease of participation and stuff with the girls, I'll say binge watching for, for, for right now. And so what is your most recent binge? What are you watching? Oh, that's going to be slightly embarrassing. Like I said, if, if I'm going to be binge watching anything, it's most likely going to be something for them. Uh, and I, I just don't have that much time off to sit there and binge watch uh, stuff. So the, the technically the last thing we binge watched was was uh, a, a uh, Netflix show called uh, Dive Club, which is, you know, an Australian, you know, coming of age mystery show that's on Netflix and the, and it is, you know, it meets those those intersections of both of the girls wanted to watch it and it was actually a decent show. And so, yes, that that was that was it. Uh, my preference would be binge watching something of like the Star Wars series like Andor or uh, the uh, Mandalorian or something like that. I'd get those in very small tidbits here and there and almost never watch TV otherwise. I tend to binge Harry Potter probably, especially that's my um, safe space when I need something just to hear. That's oh, yeah. The uh, my my dad and and my youngest brother were in were in town this past weekend and and my oldest Lila she's nine right now but she has listened to Harry Potter, uh, on Audible on on stuff to go to bed for years, uh, and also tends to, to listen to it in the car now she's moved off and is now listening to this John Grisham young adult series Theodore Boone about a kid lawyer but uh, she can hold her own at Harry Potter trivia uh, including a lot of the minutia. And so we played Harry Potter trivia and she beat the pants off of my brother and my dad. Uh, I love that. Okay. Um, next. Now we're going to go back to a more serious conversation. If I were to ask you to give us a state of the union address, if you will, about today's radiology environment, what, what, would you talk about i know we, we've already touched on some of those things but yeah what what are some key points that are relevant today and, and relevant to the radiologists that are that are working today that are looking to work whether it's the operational side of radiology and the business side what what are the hot topics that you would you would choose to deliver in in a state of the union address i mean and you could give a State of the Union uh, keynote talk on any one of the the things I'd probably mention as like highlights uh, that would need to be addressed. Uh, I think first and foremost, it's really hard to walk away from the issues with the workforce shortage. Uh, don't just look at it from a radiologist perspective. Uh, you have shortages in your ability to actually supply radiological services to communities, techs, nurses. Uh, and the rest of it. So that's fine. You can open all you know, the imaging centers you want, but if you can't staff them, it's not going to do you any good. Uh, same thing with hospitals. We have some hospitals that have just acute staffing crises. Uh, and the problem is in the same Metroplex, you got multiple hospitals who all want to run stroke programs, but there's only so many 
techs who can actually do that work. And so they keep poaching the same people from hospital to hospital and hey, good for the techs. They just drive around and add a 20 to 40 minute drive here or there and they'll switch teams every six to eight months and get their signing bonuses and the what, good for them. We tend to cover all of them. So it just, it's, it's you know, sometimes it's, it's easier to show up with the experienced techs. And then the next time you come in, the techs you worked with at hospital system A now work for hospital system B. So, you know, that it's that, that kind of cannibalism uh, of staff happens with the radiologists too, uh, because of your ability to do telework. Uh, but you, you also get, there's a, there's a, have a toxic mindset that seeps in there that's going to be a problem uh, long term. You know, a lot of radiological services are based on your ability to offer, you know, the backup of teleradiology and being able to handle that efficiently, but still having an on-site presence. And, you, you know, we've talked about radiology being sidelined and hospitals not taking our needs seriously or whatever, but it's very hard to make demands on the hospitals when you don't show up. Uh, and you don't look like the other specialties. This is one of the problems Medicare has with radiology. And so our workforce shortages, while it may seem like it offers us the opportunity to exert our economic authority in demanding you know, stipends or payment rates or whatever to provide these hospital services because there's just a limited supply of radiologists, it also runs the risk of changing the nature of our business in and of itself and how people consider radiology. Uh, so just because you're important now does not mean you will be important forever. Uh, people will find other workarounds. Do you see, where does this go? How, that, what's, I guess yeah. that's, the, that's the million dollar question. With, with respect to the workforce shortage. Where is, where is this taking? Yeah, you? with respect to the workforce shortage, to, to, to answer the where are we going, I think it's gonna be highly variable and like real estate, local. Uh, you have the ability to distribute work to a degree via teleradiology, uh, but you you need to have a place where the radiologists want to work. And you know, there's you can only pay people so much. You have a lot of the corporate practices right now developing teleradiology arms, and they're debt financing their ability to recruit radiologists because it's a existential threat to their business model. Uh, but that gets to that toxic mindset I was talking about. Uh, earlier, so allow me to expand on it. You get into almost a mercenary mindset with some of these rads who are doing teleradiology only, where people will pay them more and more. People will pay them unsupportable sums for the the work they are doing because they need it to maintain their contracts. The problem is those entities who are debt financing those positions have a limited time horizon that they plan on operating before they need to exit. We don't operate with a limited time horizon. We've been here for 80 years. We'd like to continue being the, 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 the group that provides it. So I can't go and debt finance a bunch of positions in an unsustainable way because it threatens my ability to continue to exist, uh, nor can I leverage whatever short-term advantage I have with workforce shortages over hospitals in a way that threatens our ability to be a long-term partner. And you know, at a certain point, though, you do have to push back. Uh, and you have to work with people who pay you well or people who treat you well. Uh, honestly, it's the other order. P work with people who treat you well and people who pay you well. Uh, and I think in that order is is important. Uh, so, it, But it's a balance. And you see that in some of these Facebook groups and these others where you have people who are just looking for the next highest dollar per RVU paying job, you know, not worrying about stability. And the thing is, I don't begrudge them that. They're, they're 
exercising their ability to operate within this marketplace. And I do believe in, you know, the ability to adjust and, and roll with the market. That's fair. The problem is the mindset is what I worry about. And the fact that they are coming in to a severe supply shortage. And so with a high demand, and everybody's seen those supply demand curves. And so your price is going to go up. The price for their services goes up. That's fantastic. What most of them don't realize is that is always a cycle. Uh, and that is not a permanent state of being. And so at some point, they're going to be working for a 10, 20, 30, 50% discount for what they're working for now. Now, what would cause those things? We know that you don't get immediate increases in uh, the radiologist supply because it's a five-year pipeline to get them after med school. Uh, and you're competing with multiple other specialties. Now, payment rates, and people hear about crazy sums in med school, and they'll start being interested in radiology. That's fine. But that's not really going to solve it. I don't, like, everybody tosses around AI. They're like, oh, it'll come and it'll save us. I, I don't, I don't. We work with a lot of AI startups. It's one of the advantages that we have. Our, our IT department is larger than most private practices. Uh, we have full-time developers. We write our own code. We work with a lot of people. I haven't seen anything that's going to save our asses, uh, you know, in the pipeline just yet. Uh, and granted, we don't work with a lot of image-based AI because it's just not mature enough to even deploy. Uh, not even, it's not mature enough to deploy for the most part, but it's certainly not mature enough to pay for uh, on a unit-based uh, measure. But we work with a lot of uh, workflow optimization and, and other AI products. And there is some stuff that's in the pipeline that's going to come out that it will improve efficiency. Some of the newer packs, some of the, the potential uh, voice recognition competitors, you have opportunities for even double digit percentage uh, improvements in, in productivity, you know, 10 plus percent. That's not gonna close your workforce gap. Uh, it's gonna make it less bad, but it's not gonna fix it, especially when we anticipate it getting worse before it gets better. But, you know, don't, don't discount the, the, the black swan uh, potentials. You have Medicare make sweeping policy changes. You have the insurers push back against people bringing the tiller on a lot of image-based procedures or imaging studies. Uh, you could see a strong shift in how people get imaging performed. And this is, gets to your, you know, second and third order effects. You know, we have a workforce shortage. People have to adjust to it. But people are good to adjust to those adjustments. That's your second order effects. And then people are going to respond to that. That's your third order effects. It's very hard to predict because you start getting into multiple storylines uh, to how that can play out. And there's always going to be some catastrophic event in there somewhere that will fundamentally change the way you do it. So let's call it for MAMO. Uh, the RUC had recommended a 50% cut in what the technical payment rate for MAMO was going to be. Uh, and uh, Medicare was just like, no, uh, because M MAMO had been exempted, it says not intentionally, but unintentionally via legislation and had been paid on a G code, not an actual a CPT code, G code, the government code. So it didn't ever go through the modern payment policy methodology and get repriced. And when it finally did, and it was put through that, because by the way, it was paid on a multiple of film developer and other inputs like cut film, not hacks, digital supplies and other things. And so when you ran those through, it should have had a 50% cut and it didn't get that cut. Now you have it being considered for bundling since it's now used 
uh, a significant portion of the time with Tomo and those are currently paid separately. If that comes to pass, you're, you could look at a MAMO plus Tomo bundle that pays 70% of what it does now, 60% even. Uh, that will challenge a lot of people's ability to provide those services. And that's one of those things that can fundamentally start changing the way that people provide imaging services. The same thing can go for others, but it probably won't be as extreme. Because uh, already right now, even at the payment rates we are, you're looking at not only large practices, but large chains of imaging centers being in, a, in an uh, essentially insolvent position where they cannot pay their debts without some external uh, intervention. And, and then you're looking forward at it. You know, the, the world of economics is about uh, unlimited desire with limited you know, means or funds. Uh, people have essentially an unlimited desire for imaging, but there's a limited supply of our ability to handle it. And this is where we start getting into the intersection with other themes like PAs, NPs, non-physician providers uh, in ERs and hospital settings. We know there's peer review data that shows they order more imaging. So yes, they're efficient in some senses, but that's what that like Mississippi data came out and that hospital system showed that they actually cost the system more using them because of these other downstream effects. And so in, in that sense, when they were responsible for the dollar spent. And that's one of those things that you really have to consider is at some point, somebody's got to push back and say, we can't spend this money. We don't have this money. And everybody looks at the government in that standpoint, but the government moves slow. So they're going to chip away at it. I mean, you're looking, it's rare to have something monumental come out of the government, but you know, who's really going to start pushing back on stuff is small businesses medium, even large businesses. Uh, and you've seen in, you know, intimations of that here or there. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is who actually pays for healthcare, uh, the vast majority of healthcare uh, in the United States. Besides the government payers of the Indian Health Services or the VA, let's take the government payers out. All the rest of that healthcare, for the vast majority of it, is paid for by businesses. It's not United, Blue Cross, Cigna, Aetna that pay for those things. They're claims processors. A business contracts with Blue Cross or United to administer their health plan. When, when one of their employees or employees' family members gets health care, the bill gets sent to United. United invoices the company. The company pays the bill, not United. The company does. So you have this unit of people who are interested in their health care spend because now it's gotten to the point where that it, it's interrupting their ability to do their fundamental business is the cost of healthcare for their employees. And I think that's a block there that is going to demand solutions uh, and it's going to get messy. Uh, and that's where you get into these changing practice requirements we kind of did earlier. So you're changing your nature of your relationship, not only with hospitals and imaging centers and how you cover them, whether you cover them on-site, off-site, how much IR they get, what days of the week they may get somebody, uh, but you're changing the nature of your relationship with your radiologists, the, the presumed owners of these businesses, and less and less are actually owners of the business. They're more likely employees uh, now and, and work in a corporate environment, an academic environment, and, and many private practices aren't the, the traditional physician-owned model that they were previously. And without those incentives, and you lose some of people's ability to change that work environment. And so in that standpoint, the way we see it at Radiology Associates in North Texas is I want to provide a place that people want to, to work and be the place that they want to show up. They don't have to live in Texas to do that, uh, but we're probably not going to, to take 
healthcare contracts for business that's outside of Texas. And so in that sense, I want to be the soft landing for, for radiologists and by reputation be a place that they want to come to work uh, because we'll treat them well. Uh, and at least I can't make everything perfect. And sometimes the job still sucks, uh, but I can promise you we're interested in making it uh, you know, as least bad as possible, uh, which is one of the reasons we tend to write a lot of our own software. Like if it takes 17 clicks, it really should take four. If you want people to comply with stuff, make it easy for them to comply with. Uh, and IT in large radiology practices is a is a big source of frustration. And we know that we've spent a lot of time and money on it. And so that changing nature of your practice arrangements and the changing nature of employment are two of those big things that that are, I, I would argue, are actually separate from the workforce shortage, but they definitely interact. Uh, and then finally, you get on your keynote talk, like workforce shortage, changing nature of our relationships, both with our contracted hospitals and image centers and our owners, partners, employees, whatever they may be, to finally, you know, I think, like I, I mentioned earlier, a lot of healthcare entities have succeeded in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. And that's going to piss a lot of people off because they got a lot of their self-worth wrapped up in the fact that they they made a fair amount of money in healthcare or they ran a practice and it grew such and such big or your blah, blah, blah department with grant funding or whatever. But back to the uh, let's get down to brass tacks and, uh, you know, a lot of leadership in healthcare has been a little bit narrow minded. And they they focus on near term gains, near term wins. You know, the bigger I am, the better I am. The you know, the more contracts I have, the better I am. The 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 bigger my department, or the more grant funding I have, the better I am. And I I, I don't buy any of that. Uh, I think there are multiple ways to judge the success of a practice, but probably a better way to judge it is how happy people are to work there. Uh, but nobody really wants to brag about that. I'll brag about it. Uh, I mean, we have room for improvement. Uh, you know, especially if we could just recruit some more people and we could work a little bit less. Uh, but, you know, people maximizing that short-term gain is a very, very industrial thing to do. It's a very, you know, publicly traded, make the next quarter, make the next annual report look as good as possible. I mean, GE's gotten into a lot of trouble for this. I think they've caught themselves a lot of trouble. Enron uh, and others have done these dances. Uh, I, you know, healthcare shouldn't play in that field. And we need to have a much longer term horizon uh, for what we consider valuable and, and how we want to build our, our practices and what we would interpret as success. And so when you talk about the OBL in that sense, you know, we knew there was a three to four year timeline where that's going to be negative. And in, in, in essence, as you expand, it'll get a little bit more negative before it ever gets positive. We're a little bit ahead of our projection right now, but we tend to forecast things rather conservatively and we're not to toot our horn, but our finance team is pretty damn good at it. Uh, so yeah, we're a little bit ahead of their projections, but that's something you're building that for a success in five to eight years, not to make year three look great and really don't even look at year one. You're just going to piss yourself off. Uh, but you have to know that going in. And I don't see that kind of mindset in a lot of hospitals specifically and specifically in some, some of your more corporate run groups because their timelines are shorter uh, by the nature of the investors they work with, by the nature of the projects they have to engage with. Uh, and the people they have to please. And that's where I like the, the physician-based ownership over investors, hospitals, or what have you, because the physicians know where they want to be and they know, you know what it's like uh, to get there. And I don't think that they're necessarily 
poisoned with the NBA mentality of making next month, next year, whatever look the best, whereas they can take a longer term perspective. And I could be totally biased uh, there and maybe a little bit, uh, you know, head in the clouds or optimistic. Uh, but I would say I'm an optimistic realist uh, as opposed to just, you know, naively optimistic. Uh, but that's one of the arguments I, I feel is in favor for for physician ownership is is taking that longer term perspective. Uh, and it's not just radiology practices. It's not just physician practices that that tend to have that short term focus. Uh, it's hospitals and and others. And th that short term focus impairs other industries. Well, uh, I would argue one of your big examples of people who have done it well and taking a long term perspective and willing to lose things in the short term is Amazon. If you want a big uh, big corporate example of they're willing to try stuff and break things and lose money for the long-term wins. Uh, if anybody remembers the Fire Phone from Amazon, like, you know, be willing to try and lose. We run experiments at Rant all the time, whether it's internal policies, whether it's an IT thing, whether it's, it's you know, data or metrics, we run experiments to see how they influence our RADs, how they make the RADs feel, how they, they solve a problem for us. And if things don't work, Perfect. Cut it and then move on to the next. But that's that's something we intentionally build into the culture is we're going to try stuff uh, because you're never going to find what will make your life better if you're always stuck just trying to keep your head above water or just do what you've always done. Like the worst, worst possible answer to the question, hey, why are you doing it this way? Well, that's the way we've always done it. I can't. I don't don't even say that in the same room as me. I'll lose it. You know, it's another, I guess, testament to your um, business savvy and your your true understanding of the economics of medicine, the economics of business, and, and your ability to combine them both while still being a practicing radiologist among your group. It's, you know, I, I sit here listening to this and, and I you know, inevitably start thinking about other practices and the way other practices are led or whether large or small, and how fortunate Rant is to to have the balance of a leader like you. And, and I know that you have a good team around you and good good um, corporate leadership from from Corbin and, and the rest of that team as well. And it it bodes well for you. I, I can't see that it doesn't because you're very realistic, even though the optimism remains. And and I like that. I think that. You know, it makes me, you think about these smaller practices that don't have the insight or don't have the the experience, the leadership to really see this and look at this. And it becomes easy to understand why so many practices do struggle and they struggle to remain independent or they struggle in making decisions about what to do next because they don't have um, what you have. So, and, and I'm not just trying to like boost your ego here. I mean, it's very, it's very obvious that you know what you're doing and you're, you do have that ability to see outside of yourself, outside of just your practice and really look at the industry as a whole. I think maybe that's why you only need one name. And when people say, or here shopping, they know what they're going to get because it, it yeah. really is valuable. And, and I, and it, Truly, I asked you earlier, you know, you're asked to speak often and on what on what topics you're asked to speak most often. And I mean, it's painfully, painfully, obviously clear. This is this is why you are called upon 
it's why I wanted you on this podcast. I mean, I am, you know, we're in the early stages of developing this platform. And my goal is to bring on subject matter experts who have something to say that our industry not only wants to hear, but needs to hear. Whether yeah. some of those truths, those honest truths sometimes are painful or they're tough to look at. And then sometimes it's hard to look in the mirror, hear these things and realize that you're, you're hearing and seeing yourself or you're not and you should be. So it's, yeah. um, it, it's a, it's a good thing that there are shoppies out there that can help a lot of practices and a lot of leaders, a lot of physicians learn and grow and evolve because we are yeah this industry is evolving just in ways I think we never really imagined and it, it is hard to to look at that when I ask you what what's the answer what's the solution right and and that that what's the answer that gets tough like we have a philosophy and we have a way that we we see the world you know within radiology associates within our leadership team and our physicians and we try to be open like uh I, I I can't remember exactly who said it. Uh, I feel like I read it from one of the finance writers. I tend to still read, uh, but strong beliefs loosely held as in, I'm going to believe something strongly. I'm going to believe that I'm, I'm probably right, but I'm not going to hold on to that as part of my identity. I'm not going to hold on to that as some fundamental part of myself. I'm going to hold that idea loosely and I'm going to operate from it, but I'm going to be open to being wrong. And you know, we've, we've talked about my perspective on these things, but I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong on some things, a lot of things, the whole damn thing. Uh, and I think that it's important to consider that, you know, we're not going to know what the right answer was until we look back on this in three, six, nine years. Uh, you know, the OBL moves, the, the, the diagnostic radiology moves. Maybe the right answer is accumulate as many RADs as possible. Uh, strap them to, to computers and just go because that's what the hospital wants and, you know, damn the torpedo is full speed ahead. I, I don't think that's the best way to practice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that won't be what the market picks. And I accept that. And I'm willing to be wrong because that's not necessarily a future I want to participate in. I would rather participate in the future like we've outlined here where physicians are making physician-based decisions. They're trying to create an environment that they want to work in and considering in that sense, the service responsibility of physicians to their communities and their their patients, while still needing to be, you know, economically viable, uh, that's the version of the future I would prefer. Uh, and I'm working to try to make that happen and be successful. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the future that the market, in and of itself, the country, the the the, the payment policy space, the government is going to pick for us. And so I don't I don't want to get too high on my own supply uh, in that sense, because uh, we could we could be wrong, very wrong. Uh, and we're wrong sometimes. We tend to try to not be wrong about the major things, but some of the smaller things. Uh, and we've taken risks here or there. And, and you know, you get singed, you get scarred a little bit, and it makes you better for the next time around. So that's perfect. Just try not to make catastrophic errors, uh, you know, in that sense. And that's one of those where, you know, we, our board considered it our fiduciary obligation to the group to evaluate, you know, private equity or corporate uh, investments. We've done it twice. Uh, we've even engaged a, a law and finance firm for for what we called in the, the finance industry when I did private, it was a fairness opinion. You get an outside 
person to objectively look at your business and from a just a pure financial standpoint, what that business could be worth. Our shareholders have rejected that every time. And that's one of those, I think was a, it's not a catastrophic error, but it's an error that absolutely diverges what your future options are. And it was one of those that we didn't take it, but we didn't take it not like accidentally or whatever. We didn't take that on purpose. And I think, you know, from that standpoint, you know, moving in a way that increases your options, not decreases them uh, matters. And I think that that tends to be the, 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 the branch of that tree we tend to take. We try not to close off options or opportunities uh, for ourselves as physicians, for ourselves as a practice. Uh, and, and that was one of those kind of fundamental divides in the road, the Robert Frost, you know, two paths in the wood, uh, as it were. So one of the things you, you said, it definitely um, resounds, especially since I, I ask it in the in the form of giving us a state of the union. You um, you reference having strong opinions or, or strong thoughts, but loosely held and that that doesn't define you. And I would say we've got another guy going on in our world right now. We won't go into that subject, but wow, that that describes a lot of people on, on either side of anything right now. Mm -hmm. um, but to be able to have your opinions, but but loosely held where you can hear others and, and have intelligent conversations about why you believe one thing or anyway, we're, we won't go there, but that, that resounds at the moment. Yeah, people like, it, it, there's, a, there's a meme or a, 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 I don't know if it's a political cartoon. It's just one of those cartoonized or memeified things where you have, you know, there's a line, there's two tables and there's a long line of people at one and there's nobody at the other one. And that one that has nobody at it is, you know, like inconvenient truths. And the, the one that has the long line of it is comfortable lies. And uh, people gravitate towards confidence, confident opinions, or people who tend to be skepticism sells better than optimism and skeptics always seem smart. They're, they're questioning, they're, they're contrarian, they're, they're saying these things are wrong. The problem is, uh, especially in finance, but in other places, the, the, the history and, and, and the data doesn't bear out that, that those predictors, catastrophizers or whatever uh, they may be uh, end up being right. Uh, especially in finance, but I would say in radiology, one of the first uh, ACR conferences I went to, you know, people were worried about uh, teleradiology platforms and all radiology being done in foreign countries and undermining the ability of radiologists to practice in the U.S. Yeah, how'd that shake out for you? Uh, you know, and so people people spout these things confidently and it gets them attention and it gets them speaking invites and what have you, but I think a little bit of humility uh, goes a long way there and you know, part of that's our academic environment uh, and how they work. And part of it's just the fact that, you know, controversy gets attention. And when you're at a conference, your objective is to, to make people feel like they're getting valuable information and that is worthwhile going there. And so skepticism and confidence sell, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. Right. Very true. You, um, we talked a little bit about, you know, your ability to lead because of your your vast experience in, in various things but we haven't talked a lot about or any really well, maybe a little about you 
still functioning as a practicing radiologist in addition to leading this large practice and in addition to trying it sounds to be the the best leader that you can be for your people but where do you find that balance of of being a working radiologist still doing your shifts however often you do those plus being the leader and the the person expected to guide your practice into continued success and continued growth or continued um stability where is that balance and how have you found um your place in that i mean you know does still does working often still in your specialty make you a better leader does being a, a leader and a financial leader make you a better practicing radiologist and is there a balance in there yeah i mean that's a that's a good question you can take that a lot of different angles i, I will say from the let's 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 pick a concrete and small question and answer that one in your ability to lead physicians i think it behooves you to maintain at least you know a foot in the practice uh for a couple of reasons uh it's it's shared identity and shared suffering experience uh hopefully less suffering more experience uh and you know in that way you're you're still participating and not seen as a suit uh and fully intended to be the pejorative and negative connotation attached to suit uh the but one that's even more important and, and this is something in my you know in my first board meeting as group president i i wanted to impress on our, our new and old board members was one of the greatest assets they had to our practice was sitting in the boardroom and having the discussions we have getting exposed to the information that we get and and seeing the high level views that we have from the board but also being in the trenches practicing radiologists because the way that they see their environment, the hospital, the imaging center, the PACs, the integrations, the lack of integrations, uh, and how it is like to be a day-to-day -day radiologist in our practice is hugely valuable. And it gets back to that concept of range. So the more different environments and the more different information you're exposed to, when you go to sit in that chair that another radiologist sits in, you come in there knowing more than, than the vast majority of the radiologists in the practice. And so your perception of uh, quality gaps, uh, frustrations with the, with the software and others is different than another radiologist. Not necessarily better, I'm just saying different. And that perspective is really important. And the feedback that you can get from it and respond, and more importantly, how you respond to that feedback, also important. And so that's why I think it's important to, to, to maintain uh, some level of clinical practice, even as, you know, leadership within a large organization, uh, because the way you see the work environment, the way you see opportunities for improvement uh, or potential service failures, even if they're subtle, you see them differently than, than another radiologist does. That radiologist may be used to it, may not understand the other context, or because they don't have the information or the experience you do, and it may just be their day to day. So they consider that normal. And then you go and sit in that seat and you're like, this is not okay. Uh, and it may be subtle, but if you don't act on the subtle or the nuance, then you're going to have a problem later. And that's really what it comes down to in some senses, especially when you're talking about service level issues, is you're, you're talking about problem avoidance uh, and, and perspective. And while it may seem small to somebody on a day-to-day -day basis, you as a leader who would ultimately be responsible for having to sort this stuff out on a system level, 
you can see that this is going to lead to a bad thing. So that could be like delays in imaging coming over at a certain site, whereas the res that normally cover that site, they're like, yeah, that's just how it is. And you as a leader know that eventually that's going to be a patient care problem. And therefore, IT needs to get on it until it's fixed. And it can be fixed, but it's never going to be fixed until somebody tells them to fix it. It can come down to the fact that you have a level one trauma center pointed at one DICOM router. And what you need is an array of three to load balance that thing, where the other RADs are like, yeah, every now and then a couple times a day, like stuff comes over really slowly. Well, that's not okay when you're aiming for like, you know, single digit minute turnaround times on stroke studies or trying to get 20 to 30 minute turnaround times on traumas where you may not have the report out, but the trauma surgeon is going to be calling you uh, minutes after that hits the, uh, the stack. And it doesn't do you any good if you're 10 minutes after that study was supposed to be on there and you're like, yeah, it's still loading. That's not an acceptable answer, uh, especially if you want to work in a distributed environment. And so it's those small things where it may be that person's day to day, but you as a leader go and sit in that chair. And now you're like, no, 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 this is not okay. This needs resources to be solved. Those DICOM routers are going to be a couple grand a piece. You, you spend 10 or 15 grand, you fix the workflow at that site. And now it operates smoothly 24 seven, as opposed to 21 uh, out of seven. And uh, you avoid the, the, you know, the terrible meeting you have to have with administration because all it takes is two or three cases accumulated over a month of delays. And now we have a problem. And that, that perspective is very hard for your non-leadership rads to have. And I think that's where the leadership benefit of, of having your senior or experienced people or your leaders on the board and other, other functions still in the, the clinical trenches uh, because they see things with different eyes. And their obligation, responsibility to the practice is to direct resources to solve those problems when they're small, not when they're big. If you're only responding to them when you're big, like what good are you? Great point. Okay, remember in the beginning when I introduced you using Corbin's words? I may have a few more of those from more uh -oh. friends. All right. I'm going friends. to read you some friends, maybe friends, you may not say so after this. No, it's really not bad. Um, I've spoken to a couple of your colleagues, friends, people that know you in the industry and collected a few statements. And I'm going to read them, and I want you to see if you can guess who might have said this to me about you. Are you oh, ready? I don't even get multiple choice. We just got to guess from the, the, the array of people in radiology. All right. That's yeah, rough. So you have to think, okay, this has, it would be someone that we both know. So that would probably okay. have to limit it a little bit, right? Um, uh, I probably know far fewer people than you do, so... <laughs> Well, okay, so it, that makes it even easier because think of think of our mutual connections, maybe. Yeah. All right, let's start. Number one, Kurt Shawpee is my rucksack spirit animal. I should have Jeopardy music. That has to be Galante. Nope. Ugh. Like you got the ruck reference in there, but that's it's a rucksack for people. Rucksack, which completely different. Yeah. Uh, all right, right, because you, you... we'll go back to it. I'm going to get through right. all of them. That might help. Okay, the next one <laughs> might be one of my favorites. Um, 
you've become quite the Alexander McQueen sartorialist. <laughs> <sighs> That's difficult. There's, there's a, I don't really, there, there's very few people who, who would, who would bring up Alexander McQueen, but. I actually have two references to your um, fashion collection, which is really uh, maybe not surprising so much to me. Well, I bet some people would be pretty surprised by this. In, in general, I would say your listeners, if they don't know, uh, may not be aware that I'm allergic to ties and I tend to wear sweaters and I make no apologies uh, about it. And I will almost never be in a suit. <laughs> no, that I've, I think I've that I've ever seen you maybe once maybe sweater slacks that's about all you're going to get it's actually at like a gala event so maybe uh, yeah a, a gala or something like that or if I the, the one time I will wear you know uh shirt tie blazer to Medicare because when in Rome uh I'm there representing others and I don't want to draw any attention to myself that's different than the the, the topic I'm there to discuss so yeah boring ass khakis white shirt blue or red tie and a navy blazer yes i would like to disappear into the background uh it, all right yeah, i'm gonna so. skip the answer we're gonna go through these first and all then right. um then we will go back to it i think maybe this one might be a little bit easier for you and this one is kurt you can't come to the table you are not on the sor that would be zeke <laughs> exactly yeah that was my eagerness to participate at the Ruck in the early, early days when I was just an observer. I think that was in 2012. Uh, the, uh, and, you know, they, part of the, so the ACR sends a team, several people to the, to the Ruck meetings, you know, and I was the Moorfield fellow uh, that year had done the economics and health policy fellowship with the ACR. And I'd been, you know, on the emails, participating in the phone calls and, and went to the meeting, but the, the RUC team with the SIR was stuck in a different, uh, in a different part of the meeting dealing with a different issue. And there was nobody to go up to the table. And so I was just I was like, screw it, I'm going. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't technically go to the table at the RUC if you aren't on the, uh, the, the document uh, as one of the, uh, the, the participants. And I wasn't yet, cause I was just there as an observer. Were you like Hermione with her hand raised? Me, me. I know it's. Oh, shit. I didn't know anything. I was sitting there next to uh, staff, uh, Stephanie Lee, who is amazing uh, and is our, our lead uh, RUC staff for the ACR right now, and basically just sat next to her the whole meeting asking questions like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is that word? What is that acronym? What the hell is happening? Uh, because this is not that process, that, that payment policy process is not something you get to watch a YouTube video on uh, or, or taught in med school or residency. This is an apprenticeship. It is learned. Uh, it is bureaucratic, arcane, Byzantine. Uh, pick your, pick your, uh, your poison there, but it is, it is not something you can go read about and jump in. Like you gotta, you gotta experience it the hard way. Well, yes. Okay. So you are correct. That was Zeke and, and he got a kick out of providing that for me um and he was very quick to, to respond so okay here's another one i love that what kurt and i have in common is both our love for payment policy and for fashion <laughs> i love that i've stumped you 
So now that's the second would reference be, to fashion. Yeah, would that be Melissa Chen? Really third, if you if you count the rucksack, would that the be rucksack? Uh, Doctor Chen, Melissa Chen. Oh, all right, we're starting over. Oh, Geraldine McGinty. Ding ding ding. There it is. <laughs> that was Geraldine. She she really um she laughed a lot. Of She's people. one of the few that would recognize the Alexander McQueen sweater. So ah, well. Um, so let's go back to Alexander McQueen. That was Amy. Amy. Amy oh, Amy Patel. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and then Kurt Shoppy is my rucksack spirit animal. You want me to tell you? You're going to have to. Yeah. Josh Duncan. Oh, see, I didn't know you were going to pull in the vendors. Okay. I told you connections. You didn't know. Yeah, fair enough. Yes, uh, Josh with uh, Red AI. Uh, so yeah, and then I saved the best for last. And this one, this one came to me organically. I did not actually ask for it. <laughs> In having a conversation about you with another of your um, colleagues, the um, the quote I got was, "Kurt needs to go to charm school." No, that's unfair because I already know who 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 said that. Uh, but that 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 gets to your point is is if you want to talk about personal branding, my my brand is uh, we're gonna call it straight, and I'm not gonna I'm gonna try to do it diplomatically, but I'm not going to uh, blow smoke as it were. And so that would be uh, Dr. Bello, our our board chair for the for the ACR, because uh, sometimes I say things that people don't want to hear. Uh, or that other people are afraid to, uh, and that's really what it comes into. And and we've we've had those issues uh, not just within the ACR. You have those anywhere uh, within a practice, within a hospital, uh, within your your you know uh, physician organizations, where people people want to participate in the the hierarchy uh, and they want to participate in that kind of leadership ladder. And at a certain point. I think our obligation to our practices, our hospitals, our organizations is greater than, uh, you know, personal ambition. And sometimes you're going to have to say things that other people don't want to hear that might, they might find offensive, that might challenge them. Uh, now, you should do it as nicely as possible and not be an absolute jerk about it. But I, you know, I, and even then, I don't necessarily get upset when I tell people things that are uncomfortable. I get upset when I don't have the courage to, to speak up when I should have otherwise. Uh, and so my, my incentives are a little different there. And as non-academic and as a private practice person, sometimes in those settings, academically, people could have your, your success or failure as an academic is your ability to continue to, to advance within those, those hierarchies in the institutions. Rant is a flat organization. Uh, even as president of Rant, the uh, uh, somebody who got voted on as partner as their first day as a full partner is exactly the same as me. We have one vote tied to one equity share, uh, and your base compensation is exactly the same. And so there is no hierarchy for to to, to climb or be threatened in that sense by participating in those organizations. And the vast majority of them are volunteer anyway. And if you really want to run me out for telling you the truth. I've got two fingers for you uh, and, and, you know, we can go from there. And so, you know, I don't, I, I, my value to them is, is sometimes to tell them what, what people don't, don't otherwise want to say, because my incentives are different than others. And, and sometimes I, 
made sure those incentives were aligned that way on purpose. Uh, and, you know, I choose to be that way. Now, my approach to stuff at Rant, it wouldn't necessarily be the same as my approach to service in a volunteer organization. Uh, you know, but I think that's one of those where, you know, we're in that sense better together, uh, but we got to be operating from the same page and and have the same understanding. So you, you can you can disagree on opinions, you can disagree on interpretations, but you shouldn't disagree on on fundamental facts or on, uh, I, I think in that sense, on some, you know, processes and organization in that sense or culture. I saved that one to last because it did tie directly back into the very thing we started with, with one of the things that I've always respected and appreciated, appreciated in you is that you do tell the truth, even even if the truth hurts, so I think we. I'd rather people tell me. It's like it's the same thing we talk about when we talk about quality at our practice. It's like, as a learning organization, if you want to consider yourself that, you want to, you know, not seek out or not enjoy making mistakes, but you want to be happy when you find them because it gives you an opportunity to correct them. If you're hiding from your mistakes, if you never get feedback, then how are you ever going to get better? And so I would want people to tell me when I have opportunities for improvement, just as I see my obligation to an organization that I want to succeed, whether that's the ACR or hospitals or rant as a whole, you know, I believe in transparency, but I want, they need that feedback to, to get better. And just like I want it personally or professionally, uh, I see it as my obligation to provide it to others that way too. Well, you do a great job of it. I think that we have gone on for well over an hour and we probably should wrap this up, although I, I seriously could keep talking to you. I, I always learn so much when we talk and I appreciate that. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It, it's an honor for me to have you here that you would agree to, to give us some of your time. So thank you so much for being here. Um, any, any last last thoughts or, or last um, comments before we have to go? Uh, I think we've covered it. No, I appreciate you. you. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on and and, and always enjoy the conversations and, and the insights. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's easy to talk about the, the radiology stuff in the industry as a whole because it's, it's you know, where your passion lies. And I I have fun working on those problems, even though some of them are difficult or nigh on unsolvable uh i think in that sense it's it's trying to make the future look a little more like what we would like it to be as opposed to just accepting it as a a you know a passive inevitability so i would encourage others to do the same is there's there's no reason to to accept a future state that you find unacceptable uh, i would rather you take the initiative and spend the energy and try to make that future something that you want it to be, whether that's professionally, personally, uh, within radiology or outside. Uh, don't be a passive recipient of your fate. That's a great, that's a great point to take with us as we close this up. I do have one more question. When your girls watch the Australian um, show, do they pick up the accent? Not as much as I thought they might. Uh, but, uh, they do question the accent and, uh, they're starting to sort that out, but I think we're early days on them. My lab partner in college was, uh, British and I would come back from like three hour lab things with a slight British lilt. Uh, I don't know that they, they, they caught that from me, but it's, it's, you know, that mimicry is a, is a form of flattery. 
So maybe it's just where they're where they're at. All right. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you to all of our listeners and viewers for joining us. If you are listening to this on Spotify or on Apple, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us. It would be very, greatly appreciated. Um, Practice Perspectives Team Insights is brought to you by Abadoc, a platform of workflow solutions built to optimize radiology practice operations. Thank you. The Practice Perspectives Keen Insights podcast is brought to you by Abidocs, a platform of workflow solutions built to optimize radiology practice operations.